0: As we look at the ninth commandment, it reads this way. Exodus 20, (laughs) verse 16. It says, you shall not bear false witness. If you have an NIV, it says, give false testimony against your neighbor. The New Living Translation reads this way. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have this moment. Uh, Thank you that we have been able to sing our praises to you, and you've inhabited our praises. You live inside of us. If we're Christians, we're born again, sealed with your Holy Spirit, and you are the God of truth. And we're going to look at the negative side of this commandment, that we're not to be false, not to give false testimony and false impressions, lie, lie, But the truth, the the positive side is we're to be true witnesses. We're to be people of truth. You desire, David prayed, truth in the inward parts. Would you change us, Lord? Because we realize every time we look at a commandment that it's not somebody else, it's us. We need to hear this for us. And the law is a tutor to drive me to Jesus Christ. I need a savior I'm so grateful for a Savior that is changing us, sanctifying us more and more into people of truth. Would you do your work through us, Lord? Would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit of truth would say to us? In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning again, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not bear false witness. I just wanted to give you a couple of uh, quick clarifications Um, recently, I think I said on a Sunday morning, we should live as if Jesus isn't coming. Here's what I mean by that. Prepare as if he's not coming, but live in the light of his second coming. Do you all get what I'm saying there? There's a tension there. I've taught uh, just recently in Malachi on the coming of Elijah and the, the day of the Lord, Jesus is coming again. And there's no doubt about it. And he could come in our lifetime, I don't know but make sure that you're also doing the other things that you need to do to live your life and plan well and do all those things. I think you guys get it. Here's the second clarification. I had said in a recent message that there was a gentleman who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to commit suicide. His name is Kevin Hines. This happened around uh, 2000. He was 18 or 19 years old. He was distraught and decided to commit suicide and he did jump off the bridge. He hit the water and his body was really devastated. But uh, as he was going down, he had regrets and he, was, and he said basically, This Lord, I don't wanna die. It would have been good had he done that before he jumped. But anyway, part way down, I don't wanna die, I don't wanna die. He hit the water, he, his body was racked with pain. And as he was submerging, he noticed that there was something swimming under him. He thought it was a shark, and he thought, I've survived the fall of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I'm going to get eaten by a shark. This can't be right. Well, anyway, it turned out that I had said to you it was a porpoise, and then I said, God has a porpoise for your life. I think you all appreciated that humor, didn't you? It wasn't a porpoise, literally witnessed by another person who was there. It was a sea lion that kept pushing him up to the surface until the uh, lifeguard could arrive. So it wasn't a porpoise, it was a sea lion, and I'm not lying, all right, so. And I saw the door to walk through there, however, that is, everything I just said is true, but we are talking about lying. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Now you'll notice in uh, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness or give false testimony you can kind of see the idea that there's courtroom language there, and that is exactly where the command goes. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 520, if you're interested. I've been giving you some Hebrew words, and for those of you who are new to the Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew originally, the New Testament in Greek. And here's the Hebrew word for false: it's sheker. It means an untruth or a sham. It describes, a false witness describes deception, disappointment, falsehood, and fraud. In the Hebrew picture language, it means to devour the back of a person so that they don't know until it's too late. Now, if we all look up at the, the picture, here's uh, this is taken directly from the Hebrew uh, dictionary of picture language. Moses would have written the original characters and pictures uh, more like what you see on that left-hand sign at the bottom. Here's the letters that make up the word falsehood. It's the sheen, which are basically a picture of teeth. It's the uh, kuf, which is a the back of the head in the picture. And it's a raish, which is the head or a person. You take the picture together, and shaker means to devour the back of a person so that they don't know until it's too late. Now, that is a powerful image, is it not? And you know, you can see the two businessmen there. The one guy's got his hand around the other guy. They, they seem to be laughing and you know, having a good time, but behind his back is an ax. And that is this idea of falsehood. sheker, to paint a false picture, but to have other things in mind, to have the ax behind your back, And all God's people said, yikes, more to come. Now, that's the word for false. The word for witness has legal or judicial uh, beginnings. It has the idea of a courtroom. And I would just tell you that a courtroom is a mirror into a culture. In fact, one writer put it this way. The court system of a nation depends on the honesty of its people. And so if, we, if you're interested in court shows and they're always intriguing to look at court dramas and court shows and that kind of thing and look at evidence and all of that, the idea of a false witness would be captured in a word we're all familiar with, and that is perjury. Someone would go to the witness stand and they would swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and then they lie through their teeth And if you've ever been on a jury, it's very difficult sometimes to understand who's telling the truth. And then you have slick lawyers and you have wiggle room in the law and technicalities and all this stuff. And the courtroom can move us into just society. For the last two years, it's been very difficult to discern who's telling the truth in the scientific community. Who should we believe? What are the facts? What's really going on? One person says this, one person says that. And then, you know, in Congress, they'll interview a person and they'll call, take them to task, and you watch the song and the dance. And then in the political realm, every time there's, uh, you know, a new uh, election coming up, what happens? Uh, there's the ads that go back and forth, and, you know, read my lips, no new taxes, and all, all that stuff. And you're like, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. We've become so cynical. We expect people to lie. They did a survey a few years ago in America and they asked Americans, how often have you lied on a resume? 50% of people submitting resumes in America said they had lied about something that they put on the resume. So if you're a business owner, I would make those phone calls to the references just to make sure that you're getting the whole truth. Story came out uh, around the year 2000. There was a gentleman who uh, got the Notre Dame football coach job, which is obviously a very prestigious job. I don't remember the guy's name at the moment. But he was announced as Notre Dame's new head football coach. And of course, it had to be you know a pinnacle moment for his life. But then all of a sudden, a reporter was doing some research into this guy and discovered that he had lied about his education and university that, universities that he had attended or the length of time. And it all came out. And all of a sudden, they removed him from the head football coach. I think he was the head coach for a couple of weeks. And he went from the pinnacle of life, you know, getting this incredible job to, you know, obviously uh, falling hard and being exposed as a liar. And that's one of the toughest things I think we can all, you know, we can all kind of resonate with. That is, you know, being caught. They, they call it a web of lies for a reason. If you lie about something, and this is from the greater to the lesser, so we're going to move from the courtroom into kind of just normal everyday life. And we are not to be people of falsehood. We are to be people of the truth. We're to be a community of truth. We serve the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And if you read the verse right up here, he prayed for the disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So today we are gonna get the word of God and we're gonna get a full plate of it and it's gonna confront us. And just so you know that I'm right with you, some years ago, uh, I, I went into full time ministry at, the, at uh, around the year 2000, and I was in the business world and in sales for quite a number of years. And I had a VP of sales who had been asking me about calling this client. And he was basically just pushing me to follow up with the client. And I was an ordained pastor in this company. I was ordained in 1995, this spot, you know, sometime in the later 90s. And he asked me, Michael, have you called the client? And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to. And then I made a commitment. I'm going to call them today. The end of the business day came and he said, did you call that client? And I went, yeah. I hadn't called him. So I went back to my desk and here I am, an ordained pastor in a company. I just lied to my boss, right? (laughs) Kind of in a corner, you know, in a moment. We've all probably been there before. And I went into his office and I confessed it. I said, you know what? I just lied to you. I haven't called yet. I'm going to go call right now. And he was a bit shocked that I confessed it to him. And he goes, okay, just go take care of it. And that was the end of it. And I tell you what, I was embarrassed. But I felt conviction from the Holy Spirit that that's not who I am. I am not to be a man who is a liar or in any way tries to pull the wool over no matter what we call lies, if we can call them a half-truth, if we put a color to our lie, oh, it's, it's a lesser lie because it's this, it just doesn't work. God is a God of truth, and our culture is rooted in so much deception today, it is difficult to sometimes be able to kind of ferret through it all. In the ancient world, just so you understand some of the backdrop, people charged, charged with a crime had little protection. All the nations outside of Israel had a system like this. If a a witness accused you of a crime in the ancient world, you were presumed guilty until proven innocent, and you could be condemned on the testimony of one so-called eyewitness. And so if someone accused you of something, and especially if it was a capital crime, Your life, your very life was on the line in these nations. Now, by God's providence and God's wisdom and everything, it was different in Israel. And here's how it worked. Deuteronomy is to your right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Another book of Moses. And he is going to talk about this idea of a witness in a court of law. Deuteronomy 19.15 is where we're going to be. And this is known as the power of multiple attestation. Let me just explain. In Israel, there was a requirement of more than one witness. If you've been wrestling with whether or not you're going to believe the Christian faith or the resurrection, scholars will often appeal to something called multiple attestation. That just simply means that there are multiple witnesses of the resurrected Christ, for example, or the events that surround the passion of the Christ. And so whenever you have more than one eyewitness, there's a power in that. And remember, in the ancient world, there's no forensic evidence. They can't do DNA testing. It's the word of one person against another. And so obviously it was was a challenge. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin, which he has committed. 19.15. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, now that's our topic today, don't don't bear false witness. And he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now there was not only the system of multiple witnesses in Israel, which made them different from other nations, but there was this additional caveat. If you go in and you accuse somebody of something and it's found out through an investigation of the facts that you are a false witness, the condemnation that would have faced that person is now going to come to you, And all God's people said, ouch. That would ferret out a lot of false witnesses because you'd have to be very careful. Now here's what it says. And the rest will hear. Let's say that someone was exposed as a false witness and they got what they wanted to give to somebody else. The rest will hear 20 and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you, which is part of the reason for keeping laws and boundaries. Thus you shall not show pity, And here's something very familiar to us. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now there was something else that happened in the law of Israel according to what unfolded in time. That if you accuse somebody of a capital crime, and let's say that they were condemned, you had to throw the first stone at them. Now, we all know if we fast forward to the Gospel of John, a woman is caught in the act of adultery. They push her in front of Jesus. She's guilty. But we know that the people there, the religious leadership there, has ulterior motives. They want to condemn Jesus. They want to trap him. And Jesus famously says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone at her. That is ancient law in Israel you had to not only condemn a person with your verbal testimony but then you if you were the the key witness had to throw the first rock at them to kill them it's quite a different thing from making an accusation to carrying out you know a capital 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 punishment and this is how it unfolded in israel and so uh, so there were safeguards there one of the primary ways this was expressed if you go back to uh, well, well, we'll turn somewhere else in a second, is in the book of Ruth, and it was a, in a positive case. So here's how it worked, and this, I'll just read this for you. This is Ruth 4, 7 through 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel, Ruth 4, 8. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy the land for yourself. And he removed his sandal. The sandal or footwear was a symbol of ownership and it had some other meanings. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have, re- I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased in, on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brother or from the court of his birth. You are witnesses today, and all the people who were in the court. The elders said, "We are witnesses." That's Ruth four, seven through the beginning of eleven. So, the positive side of this is that if you were a witness to a contract. This is the way it works today. If you were to sign documents, let's say for a loan on a home, typically what they will have is they will have someone there who will bear witness to that and that person is called a notary and the notary has a stamp and they will witness you signing the documents. It could be at your home or somewhere else and then they stamp the documents to, as if to say, I bear witness that so-and-so and and -and so-and-so signed these documents in my presence with my stamp and with the date. And that is the idea of a witness as well. So sometimes you are called in to bear witness to a contract exchange or a legal document. And I will say this to you in passing. As believers who are to be people of truth, if you sign a contract, if you make a commitment to pay an organization, then you ought to be true to your word. I know the society has a lot of wiggle room to get out of debt and all of that, but if you commit that you're gonna buy something and you're gonna make payments or whatever, then you should follow through with that. I've had some discussions with some people in finance and they say, well, there was such a thing as the year of Jubilee in the Bible. Every 50 years, debts were forgiven and all of that. Maybe there's a little bit of legitimate wiggle room with the year of Jubilee. But I would just say, Jesus put it this way, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. So if you make a commitment, whether it's a verbal or a written commitment, part of your testimony, and that's what we're talking about here in the world, is to be true to that commitment, to follow through and protect your good name, and of course, the name of Christ. So God forbids every form of falsehood. Let me give you an example of just how a false witness could destroy someone's life. There's several stories. You know, false witnesses came against Jesus. Uh, They came against Stephen. But in the Old Testament, there's a man named, named Naboth, and he owned a vineyard next to the king's palace. The king at the time is Ahab, and he's a wicked king. And he looked out of his window, and he saw this vineyard that Naboth owned right next to the palace. And he's like, I really want that vineyard. So he went to Naboth, and he said, hey, I'll buy that from you and I'll give you whatever price you want, or I'll give you a better vineyard in exchange. And Naboth said, no, I don't want to sell it. And he says, it's because it, it's belonged to my family for generations, and I don't want to sell it to you. I'm sorry, king, no. And so King Ahab, being the masculine man that he was, went home, got on his bed, and went, <laughs> Naboth will sell me the vineyard. <laughs> and Jezebel, his wicked wife, walked into the bedroom saw him boohooing and said, what's wrong with you? Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. She said, aren't you the king of Israel? Don't you have power and authority over the land? Yeah. All right, I'll take care of it. So Jezebel got a couple of wicked witnesses to rise up and falsely accuse Naboth in the city in front of the elders. So these guys were malicious false witnesses, false accusation. And Naboth was executed. He was killed, and the king took the vineyard. Jezebel, wicked Jezebel, was behind it all. And God spoke to the prophet, and he said, I want you to go to the house of Ahab, because I know exactly what's taking place here. And the prophet goes, and he tells Ahab, the Lord knows what you've done, and you're gonna die, and your blood's gonna be spilled on the ground, and dogs are gonna come and lick up your blood. Have a nice day. (laughs) Now, if you read the story in 1 Kings, I think it's either, I think it's chapter 21 or 20. 1 Kings 21. You will see that Ahab gets convicted and repents and the Lord, he kind of just backs off at least for the moment. But Jezebel ends up dying in this way. She falls out of a window and the dogs come up and they finish her off as well. And uh, I've just did that to improve your, your diet today. Any of you trying to diet, you know whether or not you'd have a donut after the service, Uh, I thought that might help you. So anyway, it was all for positive reasons. Now, false testimony and dishonesty are linked together together in Leviticus 19.11, which suggests that the concept of false testimony and dishonesty overlap as common sense would apply. Let me just walk this out for you. In the commandments, we go from the greater to the lesser. Murder is the most extreme. Don't murder, but Jesus said, don't hate someone in your heart. Adultery is the most extreme form of the commandment, but Jesus said if you lust after a person in your heart, you've already committed (laughs) adultery. A false witness in a court of law is the extreme example of the law, but every form of lying or falsehood would fall under the command, with this exception I put before you. We do know that there are a few cases in the Bible with the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, 15 through 22 with Rahab, the harlot who lies about the spies being at her home. And the reason that they misrepresent what's going on is for a greater good. In the case of the Hebrew midwives, they didn't want to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And so they told the Pharaoh, before we can get there, the Hebrew women are so vigorous. (laughs) You know, I walked this out for you when we went through Exodus chapter 1 and told you, Perhaps that was true. But they said, before we can get there, they've already had the baby. And Pharaoh, you know, is not happy. But God blesses the midwives, even though they seem to be deceiving the Pharaoh. But they do it for the greater good so that little babies won't be murdered. Amen. Rahab the harlot does something similar in a time of war. And another more modern example is when people were hiding Jews in their homes from the Nazis. And if the Nazis knocked on the door and said, do you have any Jews here? You know, some people were unwilling to tell a lie because they thought they'd be breaking the ninth commandment. There were others who did deceive the Nazis. And I think personally they were right. I'll let you wrestle with it. But for the greater good, they said, no, there are no Jews here. I think that's the proper answer. But again, it was only for the greater good. I know some of us wrestle with dilemmas like, you know, someone says, how do I look in this? (laughs) I understand that dilemma. (laughs) I'm never in that dilemma because my wife is so stunningly beautiful. But uh, anyway, (laughs) I will just say this. It's not even always about our motivation. But let me just share something with you. Because that is the exception rather than the rule. And I'm going to get into all the expressions of falsehood for a second. But let me just say one other thing. And and I'm kind of just parroting something John MacArthur said. Just because we're to be people of truth doesn't mean that we have to say everything that's on our heart that's true. Sometimes it's better to be quiet. So just because something is true and you observe it as so, it doesn't mean that you have to fire away with every Well, it's the truth. <laughs> yeah, but you dumb. because <laughs> now you're sleeping with the dog. So anyway, I'll let you walk that out <laughs> as you will. The ninth commandment forbids every form of falsehood, including, if you're taking notes, misleading, misquoting, misinterpreting, Rumors, either starting them or feeding them. Gossip, false flattery, fibs, and half-truths. And even sins of silence. Let's say that you're somewhere and someone's gossiping about somebody that you know and running them down. If you stay quiet, you have basically sinned in the form of falsehood because you didn't correct it or didn't try to protect that person's reputation. And so there's ways that we would just be silent and still be breaking the ninth commandment. The most blatant violation, says one writer, of the ninth commandment is any lie that harms someone else or that is against our neighbor. This is, by the way, the first commandment we see so far that says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And we've already established that Jesus said our neighbor is anyone we run into in daily or weekly life. Our neighbor has nothing to do with geographic proximity to our home. Our neighbor is anyone we work with, anyone we run into, anyone we cross paths with. We're not to bear false witness against our neighbor in any way. And so the most blatant violation is gossiping, slandering. For example, talking about people in a way that damages their reputation with others. One writer puts it this way, victims of gossip never get a chance to defend themselves. They are tried in the court of private opinion, close quote. And it's unfair. And none of us want it done to us. I remember I was getting my hair cut uh, this several years back. And uh, as I was waiting, they had this daytime show on there that was all about gossip. It was the gossip show. And next, we're going to talk about so-and-so who was saw, seen on the beach in not a very flattering bathing suit they put on 20 pounds, you know. And, and, and the juice, juicy morsels of, there's a whole industry of magazines and television programs all built on gossip. And after they would do one story, there was a studio audience, and the studio audience would go, oh yeah, and her, and him, and they would go, whoop, 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 whoop. I was like, what in the world is wrong with these people? This is why you never want to be homesick from work. Go to work. Daytime television is terrible. So, whoop, whoop. So I was sitting there waiting, and anyway, I was, I was going to go preach a Wednesday night service, and Somehow it came up, and I shared it. This is several years back. And I don't think the person is here right now, but a lady came up to me and said, Pastor Michael, that's so convicting what you said, because that's one of my favorite shows, and I watch it all the time. And she sat there in silence, and all I could do was go, whoop, whoop. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. (laughs) But isn't it crazy? We all can kind of be attracted to negative news about a person. Oh, yeah, wow. Because somehow it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But we've got to be careful. I want to show you several scriptures in Proverbs. So go to your right. You're going to pass up the Psalms. You're going to get to the Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom for living. I heard an interview recently Sean McDowell interviewing uh, someone they were calling the new Warren Buffett. He's a brilliant businessman. Uh, I think he's probably no more than 40 right now. He's become a Christian uh, and been a Christian for the last seven years, and they, they just say this guy's brilliant, and uh, he's an amazing mind. And he was talking about how, as he was studying different religions, and he's become a Christian, but he's, he's a fairly new Christian, he said he would read people who were successful in business who were pulling wisdom from the Bible, even though they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, he wasn't recommending that, but he was saying that there's so much wisdom in the Bible that very, uh, you know, successful business owners pull wisdom from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other things. Now, the Bible points us all to Jesus Christ, and that's the reason that we should be in it. But you get the point. Now, Proverbs says a lot of things about false witness, and so forth. But let's, let's read, first of all, Proverbs 18. And we're gonna look at verses six through eight. It says, a fool's lips bring him strife. Proverbs 18:6. And his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is a, his undoing, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a gossip, this is what I'm, re, I'm reading from the NIV right now. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels, they go down to a man's inmost parts. And so, you know, it it looks so scrumptious and people eat it up. Oh yeah, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. But it goes down deep into you. And it does something to you. This is what the writer of Proverbs is saying. Years ago, when my kids were younger, we had a lot of Veggie Tales uh, programs that we were showing to them. And one of them, I recall, was called the rumor weed. How many of you remember the rumor weed? I remember the music to it. But the rumor weed was people just kept telling stories and and this little tiny weed that had, you know, you could just step on it, all of a sudden it grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and and, and people were feeding it and the more they fed the rumor, the bigger the rumor weed became until finally the rumor weed was a monster. (laughs) Towering over everybody, you know. Ah! That's the rumor weed. Anyway, now... We're going to go back for a second Proverbs chapter 6. I want you to see how serious God is. Proverbs 6:16 6, says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, Proverbs 6:17, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. What's the next verse say? A false witness who utters lies and who spreads strife among brothers. You can take it to the bank that when a false witness is going around doing their dirty work, the next thing that will happen is strife among people. Take it to the bank. One writer puts it this way. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. On the other, nearly everyone does it every day. The world of politics never disappoint to produce a pack of lies I mentioned earlier, especially in these last two years, but lying is not just in the political world. It's on both sides of the aisle, it's everywhere, it's in business. Proverbs chapter 12 17 says, "He who speaks truth tells what is right," Proverbs 12:17. But a false witness, deceit. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips, 1219, will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Flip over to Proverbs 14, look at verse 15. Proverbs 14, I'm sorry, it's verse five says, a faithful or trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness speaks lies. And then go all the way to chapter 19, just a few more. I wanna give you a taste of the wisdom literature here, Proverbs 19, look at verse five, 5 says, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. And then finally Proverbs 21:28 21, 21:28 28. 21, 28 says a false witness will perish 21:28 but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever a wicked man shows a bold face but as for the upright he makes his way pure his makes his way sure there's no wisdom and understanding and no counsel against the lord the horse is prepared for the day of battle but victory belongs to the lord and the way i take that is trust the lord when you tell the truth even if it's not the easiest thing to do in the moment, because it's the best way to just stay in right standing with God and avoid the web of lies that many people will uh, find themselves in. Now, in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus tells us about the source of lying and falsehood and gossips, and the source is the heart. Matthew 15, Peter is asking Jesus to explain a parable that he had just told about what goes into a person is not the main issue what they eat what they drink Matthew 15:16 Jesus said are you still lacking in understanding also do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from where the heart and those defile the man for out of the heart 15:19 come evil thoughts Murders. Now you'll notice that Jesus is really naming commandments. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, and what? False witness and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now Jesus says the source of these things is the heart of man. So recently I was having a conversation with someone who told me that they're a, a Christian, but they're kind of newer to the things of God. And we're talking about language, and, and the conversation was basically around, you know, sometimes I struggle with my language, and you all know what I mean. You know, words are not always uh, the, the purest or God-glorifying, and what about that? And here's my response to that. I have found in my Christian life that my mouth has followed my heart. If my heart has been converted into the image of Christ, if he is sanctifying me more and more into his image, which should be happening as a believer, my tongue follows. I don't have to think about what I'm going to say or not say as a believer today. Maybe that was more relevant in the early years, because those words are just are not in my heart anymore. And it's not something that I had to really pay a ton of close attention to. I'm not saying I've arrived, and I know many of you would agree you haven't arrived, but those words just seem to disappear from my mouth because my heart has changed. My heart is supposed to be the throne room wherein Jesus dwells and has, obviously, uh, lordship. And so this is what Jesus says. Basically, the issue is your heart. If you find yourself falling to these things over and over again, you find yourself being deceptive, uh, you know, hypocritical, putting on a false front when it's not really true. The issue is your heart. The issue is your prayer time and the word of God and just your sincerity before the Lord. We know the Lord wants us to be true. And we know we've talked about, as you turn to Ephesians chapter four, that this sin specifically says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, as Paul uh, writes Ephesians, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, He's writing to Christians who have, been, have encountered the true Christ and now are to live different lives. And so here's what he says, Ephesians 4.25, and he's gonna address this idea of false witness against one's neighbor, taking it now right into the body of Christ. He says, therefore, Ephesians 4.25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, Each one of you with, notice, his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Earlier, he said, we are to speak the truth in love to one another. That's uh, 4.15 of the same chapter. Literally, we are to be truthing it in love. Here's the deal. We are a community of truth. We owe each other the truth. And so when someone encounters this faith community, my hope, my prayer for us is that we would be transparent. We wouldn't be phony about how far we've come. We wouldn't hold back truth. We'd speak it in love to one another. But we'd speak it as though if it happened to us, we'd want the same spirit to come our way, amen? We are to speak the truth in love. There are times when you don't even need to say something because love covers a multitude of sins. And if you do say something, make sure you've, you say it in love and your motive is that person's best. And sometimes, obviously, that can be uncomfortable. Now, Paul used the word, therefore. That's a connecting word, so go back just a little bit. Here he's talking about how the Gentiles live in verse 17, that they're darkened in their understanding. Their hearts are hard. 19 of Ephesians 4, they've become callous. But you didn't learn Christ in this way, 21. For if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of what? Falsehood or deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then we have the therefore, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Now, with each commandment, we go from the greater to the lesser expressions of the command. And we go from the negative to the positive. So let's talk about the positive. The positive is to be a true witness. Instead of being a false witness, we are to be true witnesses. We're to go around witnessing to the truth of Jesus. Jesus said to the apostles, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of God from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter, who had fallen, in, at a firelight just a little bit before this to a servant girl's question. You know, you have an accent. Aren't you one of them? I don't know him. I don't know him. Now is as bold as a lion in the streets of Jerusalem bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. And even at the you know, potential cost of his own life. A false witness, Peter, had become a true witness. What was the difference? He was endued with power from on high. And Paul is saying that as a Christian, if you want to walk in the truth, if you want to witness to the truth by the way you live and what comes from your lips, you put on the new man. In fact, in Ephesians 6, just flip over there for a second, the first piece of the armor of God as we resist the evil one who was a liar from the beginning and a murderer, Jesus said. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies and he's going to attack you as a believer so you got to stand you got to put on the armor of God 14 of Ephesians 6 stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth or as the NIV has it put on the belt of truth so you say well Pastor Michael how do you do that is that a literal belt that you pull from your closet is there a truth jacket hanging in your closet i wish cuz that would be much easier right If I just put on my truth jacket, ah, all of a sudden I'm a man of truth. But these are metaphors. And the metaphor is giving you a physical picture of a spiritual provision that God has for you. You got to go to your spiritual closet and put on your belt. You've got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ who is truth and then you will manifest who he is. And the way you do that Is through spending time with Him, praying, getting before your Bible, being around good company, good fellowship, worship music, things that are pure and lovely and of good repute. You sow to these things and the God of peace will be with you and the God of truth will transform you. You don't have to force it. You simply put on what He has provided. But you have to put it on. And here's what's happening Unfortunately, with a lot of the Christian community is we don't put on the things of the Spirit. And so therefore, we look just like the world. And so Paul sums up the chapter in Ephesians 4 with these words. He says, look at verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Good summary verses. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He continues. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Take it off, along with all malice. And positively, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Keep reading. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. When we do this, this pleases God. And it this takes the idea of a wonderful smell of like a barbecue to God. So Oftentimes when we're around a meal, we'll pray over a meal. And, you know, when your meal just comes out and it's piping hot and you get over your plate, and let's say someone else is praying and you just begin to, oh. And I often imagine that that's how my, our prayers are going up to God, our worship, that it's a fragrant aroma and God's just going, oh, that's a good amenicade <laughs> or whatever. I always make it Italian, but you get what I'm saying. Now, sometimes I'm over my food and someone's going on and on. They're just too spiritual for the moment. I mean, it's like, All right, pray, but, you know, we got to eat. Anyway, that's just walking in the flesh probably. But anyway. So how do we walk this out? What are the principles that we could employ so that we don't fall into the category of falsehood? Well, here's some things. One, if you're taking notes, do I need to say what I'm about to say? Two, do I, and you might ask also, is it even true what I'm about to say? Two, do I need need to say what I'm about to say to the person that I'm sitting with? And what benefit would it have if I said it to that person? And I think my three is, is it true to begin with? Or would it be better just to stay silent, change the subject, or say nothing at all or even turn a negative into a positive. How many times have we been in a situation where something's you know, just going downhill and we didn't stop it? Or we were the one perpetrating it and we realize what we're doing. We're running somebody down. And, f- and for what? I mean, we, we have to begin to ask some questions about what's my motive here? And if my motive is pure, that's one thing. But if my motive is simply to run somebody down, then what am I doing? And, and they're not here to defend themselves, so why would I do that? Now, keeping on the positive witness side, we're going to the book of Isaiah next. And as we begin to build the positive case, Israel, Isaiah 41, was to be witnesses to the truth of Yahweh, to his ways, his laws, to be a light to the Gentiles. And so here's what, in courtroom language, for those of you who are interested in this, Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are the God of the Bible, Yahweh, calling in the false gods of the nations around into a courtroom to see if they got the goods, if there anything that people should worry about. And 41.24 in courtroom language says this. uh, 41.21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments in courtroom language. The king of Israel or king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us, the idols, what is going to take place. As the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. If you're a God, then give us a prophecy or announce what is coming. Declare the things that are 23 going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil. Do something that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Conclusion, behold, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing He who chooses you is an abomination. God holds court and says, okay, it says, let's say that this was my idol and I was a person from another nation. And God says, come into the courtroom and let's see how your idol stands up against me. Oh, this is my idol. I formed the cap. I made it. Okay, let's see if it can talk. Say something. No, there's nothing. Let's see. (laughs) Could it predict the future? I don't, I don't think so. I can't even talk. And and then you go on, right? How many of you remember the show, The People's Court? Here's the litigants for the case, right? Here's Joe Smith coming in. You know, he's got charges against his friend, John Smith. What are the charges? Well, he had a typewriter from 1976 and he hit the keystroke and he broke it. And the typewriter's worth (inaudible) $95.95 today on the people's court. (laughs) You're like, I got to go to work. (laughs) These shows are terrible. The gossip shows, the courtroom shows. (gasps) Ah! Go to work. Anyway, never mind. (laughs) So here's what Israel was to do. And this is Isaiah 43.10. And God puts it this way. You are my witnesses, 43.10. Declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, I hope you see it as we've done court, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God or idol among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, And I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. There's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And God says to Israel, Don't be a false witness. You be my true witness. And here's the application to us. We are called to be witnesses to Christ. Amen? And here's what I would ask you When's the last time you shared the truth? about Jesus Christ to someone who may not know? Now, I know that's a convicting uh, question, and I'm I'm saying it to myself. But when you are a person of truth, that's one of the deep desires that you have by the way that you live and opportunities that God presents to you is to give a true witness. Jesus says this in Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, he says, the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, Revelation 3, 14, Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the one who started the creation, the one who holds it all together. And he says it to lukewarm Laodicea as if to say, you haven't been my witness. You've got me outside the door of your church. And I want in, and I'm the true witness, and this is what I want you to become again. Laodicea, don't be lukewarm. Be my witnesses. And we're gonna conclude in John's gospel as we prepare our hearts for communion. And as you turn over to John, I'm gonna share just a few verses from John and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. And I would invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to take the supper with us. And if you're not a believer, become one. (laughs) And then you can partake. And here's what's happening. Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. His life was on the line. Pilate was trying to find a way to get him off. His wife had come. Pilate's wife came, said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Jesus has been brutalized by the whip. It's hard to tell that he's even a human being. And he stands before the the Roman governor on that fateful day. Pilate John, 1833, entered the praetorium, summoned Jesus and said to him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" 1834. And Jesus said, "Are you saying this of your own initiative, or did others tell you about me?" And Pilate answered, "I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done?" Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting." So that I would not be handed over to the Jews or the religious leadership. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king, looking at the bloodied, beaten Jesus. And Jesus said, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I've been born. This is one of the purpose statements of Jesus' coming to the earth. For this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world, to testify to what? To the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to Jesus, What is truth? You know, Pilate could be living in 2022, couldn't he? Because that's what a lot of people are asking right now. What is truth? Is there anything true? Anything concrete? Anything that I could bank my life on and my eternity on? Yes. And the truth was standing before the Roman governor that day, the one who claimed to be the truth. And it wasn't Jesus that was ultimately on trial that day. It was Pilate, and for that matter, the rest of mankind. And that Jesus, who stood before the Roman governor, goes to the cross. The axe, if I can use the word picture, falls on him. Why does he get pierced for uh, my transgressions and wounded for my iniquity because he's a loving judge, because he's a God who so loved the world. And so he takes the stroke due to me. He takes the condemn- condemnation in the court, if you will, so that I, who have lied on multitudes of occasion, both by what I've not said, by th- things that, you know, I've presented in terms of the way I look or, you know, trying to uh, show somebody something that I'm not, all the times that I've been false before the Lord, And all the things that are naked and open before his throne, he took that punishment. Yeah, this is a good time for an amen. He took that punishment at the cross for all liars and all murderers and all adulterers. And next week it'll be all coveters. That's why we need a savior, amen? And that's part of the law's purpose, to drive us to Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. You know, uh, this weekend we had a retreat and one of the things that we were talking about is your opinion is the only one that matters. All that matters is that we have ears to hear what the spirit of truth is saying to the church. And oh Father, how desperately we need you. How desperately we need the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. How much we need to put on the new man and put on the armor of God. Thank you for this wonderful congregation. Thank you that they are people of truth and I know they're desiring to have truth in the inward parts and to be more and more like Jesus. Would you just shower them of grace and strength? If you're not a Christian today, there's hope for you because yes, you've broken the commandments, but Jesus Christ lived the perfect life for you, died on the cross for you, open your heart to him. How much more are you going to wait? Jesus, just pray it, save me. I believe that you died on that terrible cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. I thank you for loving me. Please forgive me of the commandments that I've broken, of the sin I've committed against you. I'm sorry. Make me your child. Be my king. And if you're a prodigal, this would be a wonderful time just to come back. Come back to the truth. The truth is in Jesus. Maybe you've been hurt, disappointed by even other believers. Don't walk away from the one who is the truth. He loves you.